Welcome to Subversion with 1517. Subversion is a podcast exploring big ideas, pushing back against accepted opinion, and talking with the people who are subverting the status quo. Today's episode is our very first recording from our 1517 at Home series of live online workshops. To learn a little bit more about those, you can go to 1517fund.com forward slash at home, or you can listen to episode 28 here of Subversion. I talked a little bit about what we're doing with the 1517 at home workshops. This workshop was on the mimetic theory of bubbles facilitated by Bern Hobart. Why do economic bubbles happen? Historically, theorists have proposed competing theories like the efficient market hypothesis, the easy money theory, and a heroes and villains theory. In this workshop and roundtable discussion, we explored the mimetic desire theory of bubbles. Based on René Girard's theory of mimetic desire, the mimetic theory of bubbles states that bubbles arise not from copying behavior, but from copying desire. Bern Hobart is our facilitator here, and Bern is a finance and technology analyst and writer. His career spans working as an investment analyst at large-scale hedge funds and as a research provider to digital marketing, strategy, and business development at media conglomerates and startups. His writing and research interests cover economic history, technology trends, the startup industry, and applied finance. He has been cited and quoted across business and technology publications like Stratechery, TechCrunch, NPR, and the New York Times. You can follow him on Twitter at Bern Hobart, and he has a newsletter that is at diff.substack.com. Given that this is a recording of a live workshop and not a traditional podcast interview, you will hear some question and answers from our audience. As always, Subversion is a project of 1517 Fund. 1517 Fund is an early-stage venture capital fund that supports teams working outside of tracked institutions with a priority on working with dropouts. If you are a hacker, maker, scientist, or founder in school or working outside of tracked institutions, you can reach out to us at 1517fund.com forward slash take Dash action that's 1517fund.com 1517fund.com forward slash take dash action because a real education is a liberation now for our 1517 at home workshop on the mimetic theory of bubbles with Bern Hobart All right. Hey, everyone. Um, thank you all for being here. It's great to be here. I uh, recognize a lot of you, although some of you do not look like your Twitter avatars, so shame on you. Um, usually on Twitter, you're all wearing masks. Anyway, um, so I'm here to talk a bit about bubbles and Rene Girard and how to think about financial bubbles from a Girardian perspective. So that naturally raises two questions. One, why care about Rene Girard, and then two, why obsess over financial bubbles. So Girard, I think he's a pretty fascinating figure, um, just an incredibly brilliant guy who had a framework for understanding desire. And he applied this framework in a lot of different contexts. So he, he has books that mostly focus on anthropology. He has books that mostly focus on literature, and um, he has books that focus entirely on religion. His framework is, um, it's kind of disturbing because what he says is that 
what you want is not really what you want. It is um, your desires are actually mediated by others. So you think that you want something, whether it's a material possession or you um, there's someone you're in love with or there's there's something you want to accomplish, but that really that desire is mediated by your desire um, to to emulate some external model. And that model could be um, it could be something totally totally abstract, semi-fictionalized. So um, Gerard talks a lot about Don Quixote and how he's obsessed with this um, entirely mythical um, chivalrous figure and he keeps trying to emulate him and um, overdoes it and humiliates himself and all this stuff. But um, you can also have a mimetic desire that's mediated by someone you actually know, someone who's actually a peer. And uh, one of the things that Gerard argues is that these peer moti motivated um, mimetic cycles are actually a lot more dangerous because you're actually a lot closer to this person. Um, you can interact with them. There becomes there's, there starts to emerge this paradoxical way in which you the closer you get to them, the closer you get to achieving that goal, the more you actually hate that person because the more that person is the one reason you don't have what you think you want. And um, related to this, adjacent to this idea of mimetic desire from a more literary standpoint is mimetic desire from a societal standpoint where we civilizations go through, societies go through these cycles where um, conflict arises. It is in part caused by the interactions of different mimetic desires. Eventually conflict reaches some kind of breaking point where there's, um, there are two sides. They absolutely hate each other. They cannot understand each other, but they're also extremely similar to each other. Um, any resemblance to American politics uh, right now or any time in the recent future, surely a coincidence. But what happens is they externalize the the conflict they identify some other outside party they decide that party is entirely responsible for the conflict and they join together in this collective act of extreme violence um, gerard points out that a lot of the founding myths of civilizations involve someone getting killed often by the entire group and he says that while remus brother of romulus probably did not actually exist as a historical figure there was probably a founding murder at the beginning of Rome's existence, that that part is not fiction. So a lot of the most bloody, brutal, horrifying myths that we read, including myths where the actual violent sacrifice has been excised from the myth, those are, are probably really the foundations of a lot of ancient civilizations. And when you think about this scapegoating mechanism, you do find some echoes of that today. So it is it is very uncommon for a society to collectively realize that it is responsible for some problem in society. It's, it's just very rare for everyone to realize that we're all a little bit um, at fault. It's a lot more common for us to find some individual or some group who we believe is completely at fault and really, really focus on punishing them to the maximum extent that we can. And one of the things Gerard says, which is also quite disturbing, is that from the perspective of the average person, this is actually somewhat healthy, somewhat safe, because if you have two groups, they hate each other, if they try to actually attack one another, then it's just escalating violence. It's tit for tat. So group A attacked group B, group B is going to fight back against group A. It's just going to keep going on and on and on. Whereas if both groups unite to go after some third party C, then they can all agree that the violent, the threat has been destroyed and that the conflict has been dissipated. One of the more badass things that Gerard says in um, Things Hidden Since the Beginning of the World is that when you look at ancient Egypt, you see these pyramids. 
stones. What is a pyramid? It is a giant stack of stones with a dead king at the bottom. What Gerard says is that the first pyramids did not have to be designed. They didn't have to be laid out by anybody. A pyramid is just what you get when everyone in the village picks up a rock and you all throw it at someone until he's dead. So that is Gerard, very dark, very deep, very violent. Um, he, he does talk about um, these various rituals of, uh, of small tribes in different parts of the world. He, he talks about the Greek myths. He talks about the, the early Greek tragedies. And he also talks a lot about Shakespeare because if you reread Shakespeare from the standpoint of mimetic desire, then you see it everywhere. You see that characters are constantly copying one another's wants and they're constantly coming into conflict because they want the same thing. But it turns out that the wanting is, is not driven by some internal motivation. It's really driven by this mimetic motivation. And um, if, you, if you reread any, any Shakespeare play from that perspective, you, you will find new things. Um, one of the more fun ways to do that though is to reread or to read uh, *Midsummer Night's Term Sheet*, which is one of the suggested readings. So this is uh, a piece by Alex Danko. It is um, definitely Gerard aware and is a retelling of *A Midsummer Night's Dream* from the perspective of a uh, group of venture capitalists in a bidding war over uh, a couple hot startups. So um, highly recommend that. Um, so that's that's why I look at Gerard because he's crazy, brilliant, and has a lot to say about um, pretty much any human interaction at any scale. Uh, why, why look at finance? Is, so one reason would obviously be that it is uh, better to have more money than less money, but I actually think that finance is an interesting laboratory for a lot of human behaviors because it takes a lot of behaviors and just ratchets them up to the maximal extreme. So you can look at a lot of decisions in terms of a trade-off between some immediate cost and some uncertain future benefit. And because financial instruments basically all have that kind of profile, the, the study of finance gives you a lot of mental tools for evaluating situations that don't perfectly map to it, but are sort of of the same shape or the same flavor. So um, a lot of options theory, for example, can be applied very readily to real life decisions. So in options theory, you know that if you have an option to buy something and the price of that option is very close to the current value of the thing, then you, you care a lot about what happens to that underlying value. But if the option is um, very far out of the money, so the, the, the stock is at $10 a share and you have an option to buy shares at 50, you actually care more about the volatility than the underlying expected value. If there's something that just makes the stock bounce up and down like crazy, even if it lowers the expected value, it actually increases the odds that your option will pay off. And if you think of someone early in their career or someone who's very much on the periphery of society, they sort of have an out of the money call option on reputation, wealth, success, et cetera. So they care more about shaking things up than about improving the state of the world. Whereas you can think of the profile, the payoff profile of someone who is really part of the establishment as essentially betting against options. So they, if you are say, the, um, the president of a major university or a vice president of a major tech company or a major financial company, the best world for you is a world that, a the best future for you is a future that is exactly like the present, just with a little more compound interest. You, you, if you're at Harvard, you'd like a world where Harvard is slightly more prestigious, where the growth of the number of people who want to go into Harvard continues to exceed the number of people who get into Harvard such that it gets more and more exclusive every year. If you are running a major bank, you'd like to live in a world where everyone wants to buy a house, they want to buy a large house, they want to pay their mortgage, and uh, they don't want to do anything particularly crazy with their personal finances unless they're paying you an appropriate risk-adjusted return. So um, a, lot of, a lot of individuals have these 
career profiles and risk profiles that you can you can express through um, through these financial metaphors. And when you look at a financial bubble, this is this is finance taken to its most extreme state, where it becomes totally recursive, self-referential. Where a financial bubble, so normally an asset market, a market is a way to price assets based on reality. But bubble dynamics arise when the the price of the asset and the change in the price of the asset actually becomes a factor in the perceived value of that asset. So um, you can look at cases like in the dot-com bubble where the reason that so many small marginal dot-com companies were able to raise so much money was that companies like AOL and Yahoo were putting up just stellar growth rates. The reason AOL and Yahoo were growing so fast was that every time a startup would raise a bunch of money, it would need to advertise to people who were online. Almost all those people went to either AOL.com or Yahoo.com as their homepage. So every startup had to raise money and then immediately spend it on AOL. And um, that caused AOL to beat earnings. And that meant that more investors who were interested in early stage companies would look at these crazy cool dot-coms and uh, try to invest in them. If you look at the um, subprime real estate bubble, kind of similar dynamic where, um, as it turned out, you would think that the credit worthiness of a, a borrower, a mortgage owner, or a mortgage borrower, would be based on things like their their job and uh, whether or not they had a steady paycheck, et cetera. And those things did matter, but it turned out that as long as housing prices were going up, mortgage default rates were incredibly low because people just kept refinancing. So even if you lost your job, if if your job paid you 50K a year, but your house had gone up 100K a year in value, then it was actually uh, better to be unemployed in a rising real estate market than to be employed in a flat real estate market. But since, um, since mortgage availability was also a factor that determined whether or not housing prices went up, it created this recursive cycle where low default rates caused more investment in mortgage-backed securities, the mortgage-backed securities caused low default rates, and that continued until one part of the cycle broke down, and then the whole thing unwound quite catastrophically. Um, there are a lot of theories of bubbles, and um, I'm sure a lot of us are um, adherents to one or more of them. I like the Girardian theory of bubbles, this mimetic desire theory, because I think it just it adds something more, more personal, more tractable, more understandable to bubbles. And since bubbles are this social phenomenon where people are not just reacting to the outside world, but they're reacting to reactions. Someone like Gerard, who's thinking entirely about how people react to other people's actions, is actually the, the right person to focus on. So if we think about the, the bubbles from a Girardian perspective, we would think about how whenever you, um, if you participate in a bubble, it's because you see that someone has made money and you think you understand why, and you would like to make the same amount of money. You'd also like to be the kind of smart, sophisticated person who made that decision, and you copy some aspect of what they did. Now, very few bubbles are just based on everyone buying exactly the same thing. That would be pretty boring. What does happen, though, is that people try to figure out what is the underlying theme of this bubble, what is the underlying reason that this particular asset went up, and then they try to copy that. So in the dot-com bubble, Part of what happened was, as I mentioned, Yahoo and AOL and Amazon, these companies were, were very successful early on. There were a lot of follow-on companies, Me Too companies, that were trying to do nearly identical things. So Barnes & Noble spun off barnesandnoble.com. Everyone who was vaguely following the stock market knew that online bookstores were huge. And so a lot of people piled into Barnes & Noble. Um, this smaller chain called Books A Million created their own website, booksamillion.com. They literally just put up a catalog in HTML. They had a website. Their stock went from $3 a share to 50 in a couple of days, just on that news. Um, 
at one level, investors were actually doing the right thing. They were learning. So they saw that there was one successful online bookstore. So they realized that selling books online was a good business. At another level, they were learning exactly the wrong lesson, which is the lesson they learned was this is a good business to take online. The lesson they should have learned is online businesses are monopolies. There are particular cases where a given business is um, is easy to move online and whoever moves first or whoever gets to dominant market share first is probably going to be the winner. But if you really look at what Amazon did, what plan they executed on well, what they realized was there was an aspect of the real world that you could actually very conveniently map to a standard SQL database and that you could display in HTML. So books have a lot of searchable metadata. They are fairly, um, fairly cheap to ship and there are a small number of book wholesalers who have basically every book in existence in inventory. So you can, you could in 1994 just throw up a web page that was basically an online front end to somebody calling up the major book wholesalers and actually putting in orders and you immediately have a bookstore. Um, the, the closest analogy I think to Amazon as uh, the closest analogy of the 90s startup to Amazon was probably Google because Google also found this unstructured or semi-structured database of information that you could turn into a single a single accessible valuable website and in in amazon's case it was the set of all published books in google's case it was the set of all web pages and all the links between web pages so google like amazon found this big messy thing that could be converted into a single search bar and that could create value that they could capture and um, they did it so um, when, you, when you look at that from a Girardian perspective, what's kind of funny is that Amazon, Google is not trying to emulate Amazon at all. They were, they were almost diametrically opposite. So the origin story of Amazon was literally that Jeff Bezos was a guy working at a hedge fund. He, he knew the internet was trendy and growing, and he made a list of every way you could make money on the internet. Um, Google was basically two guys procrastinating, procrastinating on their PhDs. So they were in a non-commercial job and they were doing like the least commercial version of the non-commercial thing where they're doing a job that you don't do for the money and they're not even doing the job. So um, almost exactly opposite. Um, they were not copying each other except in some incredibly deep fundamental sense. And a lot of the people who've tried to copy these companies have totally failed because they do copy this superficial visible thing. They try to mimic Bezos, but more so. so they find these. They find some parts of Amazon that are somewhat hard to copy. Like you can't copy realizing the internet was a big deal in 1994 because it's not 1994 anymore. But you can copy expanding really fast and losing tons of money. So that was the part that a lot of people managed to copy. And um, as they did that, they did um, they did actually ratchet up the hype cycle. So when you have more people talking up more huge businesses online and more of them are buying ads from each other or um, they're, they're all purchasing networking equipment from Cisco and they're all paying the, um, the dot-com consulting shops like Scient and Viant to build them websites, it does actually appear for a while like something useful is going on. But really a lot of value is being destroyed because everyone is copying, no one is creating, and they're all doing this simulacrum of creation but it's really just value destruction. And then there's a really interesting narrative inversion, which is after the bubble ends, we try to figure out what happened. Who's at fault? Why did this happen to us? And we immediately switch into this scapegoating mode. So after the bubble, 
there were tons and tons of media articles about all of these incredibly irresponsible dot-com companies. There was a, a book called dot-com, there was a book called dot-bomb. Um, pretty much anything that you could do to create a narrative where these guys were basically swindlers, they took something that would never be a viable business that was just a catalog company with extra overhead, and then they they raised lots of money and fooled everyone into, into paying them um, for nothing. That was the narrative that a lot of people pursued in the 2002-2003 period. And um, then around that period, there were also a number of high-profile accounting failures. This got wrapped into the dot-com narrative. So you had um, these crazy tech companies on the way up, and then you had companies like um, Enron and WorldCom on the way down. Now, technically, Enron was an oil and gas company, but Enron did spin themselves as a dot-com, and part of their accounting fraud was... Um, from trying to shuffle around money that they made from investing in an early stage.com. So Enron sort of got tied into this and you could plausibly put together a narrative where the entire bubble was the creation of this weird accounting stuff and this weird shell game chicanery and there was nothing of value created. But where that gets really interesting as an inversion is that what was actually going on from the start of the bubble to the end was that at the beginning, the vast majority of people didn't know what the internet was or didn't care or they'd heard about it and they actively dismissed it. A tiny, tiny minority of people thought that it was truly significant. Those are the people who got involved early. Those are the people who were building companies like Netscape, Amazon, Yahoo. And at the peak of the bubble, it was basically the opposite. Everyone thought the internet was huge, transformative, important. Everyone thought that every company, every retailer would be moving online, that the internet would transform the way we do literally every part of business, transform every part of our lives. And, um, then, and then after the bubble, we decide that actually this collective mass delusion was the fault of a few people. So um, that, is, that is, I think, the main narrative arc that you can get out of the Gerardian theory. You can look at other theories of bubbles and a lot of them apply in, in some cases and apply less well in other cases. So um, there are some economic schools of thought that hold that all bubbles are created um, just from excess money supply. And um, at some point that becomes somewhat tautological because what is excess money supply if not enough money to apply too high a price to every asset? So essentially prices are like the, the value of assets in terms of dollars is too high if the value of dollars in terms of assets is too low. Um, so that is that is one theory, but it is true that changes in the money supply do have a significant effect on asset prices. Um, you can also apply fairly cynical theories of bubbles where every bubble is just purely fraudulent, where it's always taking advantage of the credulous, but that's that doesn't hold a lot of water because at the peak of a lot of bubbles, there are a lot of true believers who lose a ton of money. Massasone lost more money than anyone in human history uh, during the collapse of the dot-com bubble, and maybe he'll do it again. Um, if you look at um, 2007, 2008, the investment banks of the big four investment banks at the time, they actually failed in order of how high insider ownership was. So Bear Stearns had the most employee ownership, blew up first. Lehman Brothers was next, blew up next. And then um, Merrill and... Um, and uh, Goldman Sachs were at the other end of things. So um, with a lot of bubbles, it's really hard to argue that the cynics were totally responsible for this because there are enough true believers involved that that just doesn't, uh, does not apply. Um, another way of looking at bubbles, which is, is not so much an explanation of them, but is a really good description of them, is that economic bubbles can only exist when you have a um, 
fairly well-known upfront cost and an uncertain and perhaps an unmeasurable long-term outcome. Um, there are some cases where you have, you have a lot of optimism about the future, but you don't have bubble-like behavior because there's just nowhere for a large amount of money to go. Um, whereas if you look at things like, uh, so that's, that's actually one, one distinction between the, uh, the late 90s internet bubble and say the mid 2000s um, web 2.0 early social boom, the dollar amounts involved early on were a lot lower because there was just um, so much equipment had gotten so cheap and it had gotten so affordable to build reasonable product and scale it up that there was just no way to write enormous checks. We didn't actually get the opportunity to write enormous checks until Google and Facebook, who were sort of early, um, early companies in that second wave of dot-coms, um, until they got big enough to start charging monopolistic prices for ads. So now we're back to the point where you actually can throw enough capital into a tech company to achieve some sort of bubbly, bubbly dynamic. But at the time, you, um, you really couldn't. There just wasn't, um, wasn't enough room for money to create an actual bubble. Um, that's, that actually is a useful thing to keep in mind from this Girardian perspective, because when you're trying to copy someone else, um, you you actually have to put forth some kind of effort. Like there's there's no sense in which you can fully copy someone else who has a head start at whatever it is that they're doing because they've been doing it for long enough for you to notice and want to copy it. Um, you can only do that at some upfront cost and um, often a very high upfront cost. So you it does actually fit into into that narrative, um, the the mimetic narrative that you do have to put forward this large uncertain investment. But where that can lead to bubbly dynamics is that it's it's really hard to measure what the long-term outcome is from this upfront investment. And it's really, really easy to, to overshoot. So um, going back to the 90s bubble, there was a point at which eBay was an incredibly hot stock. And it turned out that eBay was, um, at least the auction side of eBay, was basically this one-time process of taking all of the antiques in every single attic in America applying a market price to them and getting them in the hands of collectors. Um, it was also partly a process of a speculative bubble in Beanie Babies. But once that was over, eBay as an auction site was really not that meaningful a business. Um, you can look at things like the, um, the, the Groupons and Living Socials is another case of a one-time bubble where there were a lot of financially stressed small businesses. A lot of them needed cash as quickly as possible. Um, Groupon had worse, laxer credit underwriting standards than the typical bank. So if you really needed 20K fast, getting it from Groupon was a lot easier than getting it from Chase. So a lot of restaurants did that. And then um, as that cycle, as, as the economic cycle improved, a lot of them were less cash constrained. Meanwhile, a lot of restaurants got extremely burned out on, um, on bargain hunters who had used Groupon and Living Social and just had no willingness to spend more money. So um, there was this really rapid growth cycle. And then immediately people started realizing the limitations of the product. And since there's a lot of price competition between Groupon and Living Social, it basically eliminated anybody's ability to price things effectively and, um, and totally destroyed the market. So at the time that a lot of uh, large venture capitalists were writing large checks to Groupon and Living Social, it didn't really look like they were building something totally unsustainable. They were building this one-off business that was just going to burn through a bunch of small businesses, burn out a bunch of consumers, and then be done. It looked like they were building an entirely new channel that was replacing the Yellow Pages. But 
they they really weren't. However, they were really good at copying one another. Um, there was a time at which um, Groupon and Living Social were using nearly identical ad copy. They were definitely using the same channels, so a ton of Facebook advertising, for example. And every time Groupon would come up with a new effective sales pitch, Living Social would immediately copy it, and vice versa. So even though they were, it was actually a pretty good idea, especially at the time, um, it quickly having two people implementing the same good idea, having each one raise capital on the basis of the other one is able to raise capital. So essentially, Living Social could raise capital on the basis of how big Groupon was. Groupon could raise capital on the basis of high, how high Living Social's valuation was relative to the revenue. And that just kept ratcheting up until they had enough money that they could both burn, they could each burn the other business down to the ground. Um, I think that is uh, perhaps a little bit of a, a tangent from the original topic, but Gerard is a master of tangents and um, he always keeps looping back to this, this same dynamic where um, pretty much any social phenomenon you can look at, it ultimately comes down to people being very bad at coming up with their own desires, people inferring desires from other people's behavior and eventually converging on, um, everyone eventually converges on being the same fake persona that is entirely derived from perceptions of others. So um, with that, I think, I think that's been about 30 minutes. So I will open things up to questions. Um, if anyone is interested, there are a lot of case studies. Um, I wrote through, I wrote up several of the case studies in the paper and uh, would ha be happy to go through any more. And otherwise I will open it up for general questions. I guess we'll work through this queue too. All right, so Abe has a question. Uh, Gerard's theory says that humans are mimetic and their desires are mostly mediated by others. Okay, but then why are human desires in the context of financial markets mediated towards so-called globalizations? Um, could you actually clarify what you mean by globalizations there? Um, yeah, so, um, so, so, so I guess like there's a theme to all these bubbles. So like one of the thing, thing about these bubbles is that you can't have a bubble about something trivial. Except, except maybe 2008 was was absurdly crazy because it was basically about like housing prices going up uh, up forever indefinitely. But if you look at all other bubbles like the railway bubble or like the ICO bubble or the web web bubble, internet bubble, they were all like bubbles about uh, a certain story about globalization. Basically, like saying yeah, so the future is just going to be the the new economy is going to be the internet or the new economy, the new finance is going to be crypto ICO. It's going to change the world. Everything's going to be different. And so, so it's not like these desires. So like, so if you, if you, if you apply Girard's theory in like uh, the context of like maybe Shakespeare or something, it's like human desires are arbitrary. People are, people care about like arbitrary things. They, they fight over things that don't matter. But if you apply Girard's theory within the context of these financial bubbles, there seems to be a narrative. It's not completely arbitrary, except like with some ex exceptions. It seems like it usually surrounds a powerful story about like the world coming together or, or you know, it, it culminating in some sort of n new, you know, so like th there's some, like you said, like there's some truths to these bubbles. So there, I guess there, there are um, two things to, to look at there. One is the question of do all bubbles have narratives? Um, is 2008 the weird exception or is there something else going on there? And then the other is, yeah, how do you apply Gerard when there's, there's something real going on? Um, not just totally fake competition. 
Um, so what I'd say on the first point is that it's useful to distinguish, you could either have your taxonomy as uh, credit bubbles versus equity bubbles or as convergence bubbles versus divergence bubbles. Um, usually credit bubbles are convergence bubbles, but not always, but I think that's, that's easier terminology. So in, a, in an equity bubble, you are, like you said, you're betting on some narrative about how the world is going to be totally different in the future. If the world's going to be totally different in some lucrative or economically meaningful way, you want to own the most volatile piece of that future. You want to own the piece that is the most economically sensitive to these changes. So you want to own equity. And um, dot-com bubble definitely applies. The 60s tech bubble applies. Um, 20s sort of applies. But credit bubbles or convergence bubbles are a bit different. They're actually a bet that the world in the future is going to be more like the present than the present. It's going to be like a higher fidelity copy of the present. And that's, that's true in the sense that it'll be a more certain world. So um, part of what drove the housing bubble was the realization that housing prices in the U.S. had gone up and down on a regional level, but they had basically never gone down on a nationwide level for, I think, since the Depression. And there were a lot of theories as to why that was, but what happened and what often happens in a convergence bubble is that the the variable becomes driven by the model of the variable. So the fact that people concluded that housing prices never go down on a nationwide basis meant that if you bought a diversified portfolio of mortgages that had mortgages in every part of the country, then there was zero chance that all of them would go down at once. But of course, if people are thinking like that and that is causing them to invest more in mortgages, then the marginal additional mortgage is provided by one of these very diversified sliced up portfolios. And if the availability of mortgages drives the, uh, the prices of the underlying houses, then the price of the house and thus the collateral of the loan is actually driven by that narrative. So as long as everyone believes in the narrative, it works out. As soon as people stop believing in the narrative at any level, it, um, it stops working. And then you can actually synthesize both of these arguments into the, um, into the legibility argument. So every economic bubble seems to trend in this direction of increasing legibility. And this is in the, the James C. Scott seeing like a state, a state sense where um, governments have always wanted to impose legibility. They want everyone to have a first name, a last name, a fixed address, and uh, ideally some number on file that connects them to every, everything the government wants to know or needs to know about them. And that's useful for the purpose of taxing people. It's useful for the purpose of conscripting people. And you can think of taxation and conscription as just broad terms for either getting access to the value of the economic outputs that someone produces or getting, getting access to their economic inputs. If you look at bubbles, whether they are convergence bubbles or divergence bubbles, they do create this informational dividend, this, um, this legibility dividend. So one of the very early bubbles was the bubble in global trade and shipping um, during the colonial period. So the South Sea bubble, for example, was part of this early 18th century. And um, one of the results of the dramatic increase in economic value that was carried by ships was solving the longitude problem. So we literally added another axis to the coordinate grid of the world just to, just to make more money. The British Parliament just put together a giant reward for it because they were making enough money from trade that they figured it would actually, it would be, it would pay for itself. Um, you can look at the railroad bubble of the 1840s as um, imposing a, a much sharper distinction, a much sharper time distinction. So prior to that, you could travel, but travel times were very uncertain. You couldn't really send a message ahead of whatever you, whatever mode of travel you were using. So um, 
travel and location proximity were all just these kind of vague things. You would just show up at someone's house. Um, once there were trains, once there were timetables, you would actually, if someone was coming to visit you, you would know down to the minute exactly where they would be. And that was really the first time that anyone who didn't work at a factory would have to care about what, what time it was down to the minute. And then you can extend that even to the present. So the, the housing bubble had a lot of catastrophic negative effects, but it did actually create a lot of data on housing. It also created this huge cohort of houses that were almost entirely identical because they'd been mass produced to fulfill the demand for housing outside of Las Vegas and um, outside of Tempe, Arizona and places like that. And that actually laid the groundwork for the, um, the iBuyers, the instant offer companies that have arisen in the last couple of years because if you are building a machine learning model that's trying to estimate the value of a house, you really want to build that model on a house with as few features as possible. And um, a, a mass-produced subdivision is basically a training set for your pricing model. And if every house first got sold in 2006 and then got foreclosed in 2009, then you actually have a really good idea of the range of values and how every single amenity and every single little bit of location data affects the price of that house. So every bubble tends to create legibility. Now we can turn to the Girardian piece. So when you are copying somebody, when you have this mimetic desire, you do have to copy somebody who's distinctive for some reason. So there's always like the little, little bit of sand that creates that pearl. And in some cases, it can be somewhat arbitrary. And George sort of, he's kind of slippery sometimes. So he'll go back and forth between saying that we're gonna, we're gonna find the most extraordinary person who somehow demonstrates some value that we care about. So that would be um, Don Quixote, for example, who is just obsessed with Amadeus of Gaul and wants to be like this incredibly noble but entirely fictional knight. Or you can say, if you have a neighbor and you and your neighbor went to the same school and you and your neighbor work at the same job and your neighbor tells you about this girl he met, that suddenly you become obsessed with getting the girl first. Um, I, I guess mimetic desire can work either way. It can either be that you have this um, entirely external, entirely theoretical, and um, very much you know perfected model of who you're emulating, or it can be that you actually know them pretty well, know who they are, they're fairly similar to you, and as you try to copy them, as you get frustrated by the failure to fully copy them, you start ratcheting it up and ratcheting up the behaviors, and meanwhile, because they are just as susceptible as you are to mimetic desire, they start ratcheting up the same behaviors. Um, so they start sharpening these differentiations while also trying to outdo you at whatever it is that you're trying to do. So you can you can map the uh, you can map both the convergence and divergence bubble narratives to that, where there's there's some element of copying without consciously copying. There's some element of very consciously copying, only doing it more so. Um, it, with credit bubbles, it's actually a lot easier to copy because you could just do the same thing with more leverage or do the same thing with a slightly fancier model. But with the, with the qualitative bubbles, it's a little bit trickier, but it's still visible. All right, um, from Joe, what has changed about bubble formation over time? Participation has become more democratized. Um, so the democratization of bubbles is also a tricky topic. It does seem to vary a bit over time. It doesn't go up linearly because you have regulation going back and forth. Um, 
at times there's been a lot of stock market participation because there have been few regulations stopping bucket shops from basically fleecing people. So in the 1920s, a lot of people were involved in the market because there was not a lot of legal liability for getting someone to invest in a very inappropriate stock or uh, lending them a ton of money and hoping that they went broke. Um, so in that sense, it fluctuates a little bit. Um, and if you look at some recent bubbles, like the subprime bubble, there were definitely people who were flipping houses. So to the extent that it was a real estate bubble, you can say it was very, very democratic. So a lot more people own houses than own equities and a lot more people aspire to own houses than aspire to own equities. But in another sense, if the bubble was actually a bubble in these very elaborate structured products, it was a very, very elitist exclusive bubble. So maybe a couple thousand people in the world were directly or indirectly involved in manufacturing um, synthetic CDOs or CDO squares or the, the really weird mutant toxic waste securities that proliferated towards the end. So in that sense, they get more or less elitist over time. Um, it's really, it's unclear if there's anything that has meaningfully changed. Like the timescales don't seem to have changed all that much, which is really surprising because the timescale for almost everything else seems to have accelerated. Okay, the timescale for everything other than um, government public works projects has accelerated massively over the last 200 years. Um, so you would think that, but if it used to be that there's like a two year cycle where stock prices go way, 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 way up and then in three months they crash, um, you'd think that, that would happen really fast, but it doesn't seem to have happened that much faster in recent bubbles than it used to. So it may be that a lot of these phenomena emerge at a more human scale that is not actually mediated by technology. So maybe you get more instantaneous access to news, but your ability to form this mimetic model of somebody else and slowly convince yourself to copy them, that might just be, um, that might be confined to wetware. It might not be subject to Moore's law or any of these other accelerants. So I don't know if anything has actually changed or perhaps nothing will ever change about financial bubbles because once you've, once you've developed some science of solving bubbles, you have, probably found some way to precipitate another bubble. Um, Bonnie says, which bubbles do you think we're in now? Um, that's a really hard one. So I don't wanna give trading tips. Um, so there's, there's this meta bubble of, um, I guess being able to, I mean, you could say that passive passive is probably the best um, best example of a bubble right now, where the idea that you can buy every stock and not really select within the not really select individual securities within that and, and still get a re reasonable return that has bubbly aspects to it because that's something that is definitely true if nobody believes it and definitely untrue if everybody believes it, and so that's that's the typical shape of a bubble, but it's really tough to actually turn that into a normal mentally tractable bubble because it's not a claim that, that say every stock of the S&P is massively overpriced with respect to the underlying value of the business. Um, it's more a claim that the, the shape of the market has changed in this really weird way and that there shouldn't be as much of a free lunch as there appears to be for the average investor. So something weird is going on. Um, you can, you can say that the, the, the actual piece of the market that's mispriced is that if you treat, if you say that every investor who's benchmarked against the S&P could buy the S&P by default, 
you're paying them more than an index fund costs because you expect them to not buy everything. You expect them to skip the bad stocks. So really the bet with passive investing is that the cost of adverse selection is less than 1% of your portfolio a year or something like that. But if the, the cost of adverse selection is a function of how many people are picking stocks and how hard they're trying at it, then that can't be true forever and it's possible to overshoot. And if money gets pulled out of actively managed funds and gets put into passive funds, then the active funds are selling whatever they own and um, the passive fund is buying whatever they didn't own. So to the extent that active funds are good at picking stocks but not good enough to justify their fees, then any move from active to passive necessarily penalizes the stocks that are good stocks to pick and benefits the stocks that are bad stocks to pick. And that can lead to some weird and pathological effects. Although if you if you debate this with anyone who's an, an active practitioner in the market, there are all sorts of weird esoteric debates you can get into about whether prices are actually set by the flow of money over time or whether they get reset after hours and are they anchored based on the flows or not. So um, it quickly gets very complicated. So I would say that it has um, it has the template of a bubble, but you can debate it for arbitrary lengths of time whether or not it is in fact a bubble. Um, Simon says, what does the Girardian perspective suggest about efficient markets? Um, I would say that Girard, in, if you think the market is fairly efficient, then there's, there's often an opportunity to lever up because one of the reasons that you don't want to maximally lever up is that you worry that there's some risk you haven't thought of that can cause you to lose all your money. But the more efficient the market is, the more every asset price actually reflects all the possible risks. So in the event that markets are efficient, everyone should lever up more. If everyone levers up more, then any, any weird unexpected thing causes a lot more forced selling that pushes assets way down. And um, because of the general knock-on effects of a lot of people liquidating assets and delevering, that tends to cause a recession and tends to worsen the entire situation. So um, I guess you could say that, that if you, if you think the market is efficient, it doesn't really make sense to do any kind of security selection, but it does make sense to borrow more money and borrowing more money, but buying what everybody else is buying is a pretty purely mimetic kind of behavior. All right, Manarud, um, Peter Thiel remarks in his optimistic thought experiment, which is a great essay, I recommend you all read it. Every bubble is actually part, of, part and parcel of a larger story about globalization, which he refers to as the great boom. Is every bubble just a smaller story about this mimetic desire for a unified world? Um, I don't know if Gerard is the right guy to think about with respect to the globalization story, but I actually think that Eric Vogelin is a really good philosopher to read if, you, uh, if you're considering this, because Vogelin has this wonderful framework where he thinks that basically every important political movement of the 20th century is some variant on the Gnostic heresy, and um, he has a lot of elaborate political and theological arguments for why this is, which I will not get into because they are extremely elaborate and fun to engage with, but um, well beyond the scope of this discussion. I will say that what he is always afraid of is one, the idea of perfect esoteric knowledge about the nature of the world, and two, the desire to impose some sort of heavenly perfection on this earth using flawed human beings who are subject to original sin. So you can cast a lot of bubbles as this kind of attempt to amenitize the eschaton of this, this attempt to 
bring about the end of history and perfect humanity in some way. And the meta bubble of globalization is definitely a part of that. Um, I don't know if it's perfectly true that every bubble coincides with globalization, especially because the, the 1920s were part of a period of deglobalization. I think free trade, or I think trade as a percentage of global GDP peaked in 1913, receded for a really long time, and then started coming back in uh, probably the 50s. So there have definitely been bubbles that were not actually part of uh, part of globalization, but globalization does lend itself to A, bubbles, B, very mimetically driven bubbles, because part of globalization is taking something, taking a technology or whether it's a physical technology or institutional technology that works in a rich part of the world and applying it somewhere else. Um, there have definitely been parts of the globalization story that were hyper, hyper Gerardian. So um, I love reading about South Korea during the Park Chung-hee era when they were, it was a military dictatorship that was trying to rapidly industrialize and uh, was competing with Japan. Um, they were competing head to head with Japan, but the, uh, the entire South Korean elite was elite because they had joined the Japanese military when Japan was a South Korean colony. Now they were competing against Japan. At one point, South Korea actually signed a, um, signed a deal with Japan where Japan was going to pay reparations for the way they treated South Korea during the Second World War and the colonial period. And the form that reparations took was A, money, and B, um, the Japanese steel companies had to help South Korea build a steel industry. And um, there's this anecdote that the foreman of the, um, the foreman of the construction site, while this South Korean steel mill was being built, that he would lecture his employees and he would say, this is blood money and this is our only hope of getting revenge against Japan. So if you can't get this done by your deadline, you should probably kill yourself. Um, that's pretty hardcore. The, the dictator of South Korea would often read himself to sleep by reading Japanese economic textbooks and reports on the Japanese economy in Japanese. But South Korea was basically following the industrialization path that Japan followed just a decade later. So um, extremely, extremely mimetic desire, somewhat driven by admiration, somewhat driven by just raw hatred. But um, it actually worked out pretty well for them. They've, uh, they've survived some crazy financial crises, but um, Clearly, some level of copying was was not super harmful, um, but and that it's kind of hard to falsify the the argument that globalization can be not harmful. Like you can you can extrapolate. You could say that if everyone had a Western lifestyle, then um, the world would be five degrees warmer and we'd be using two hundred million barrels of oil a day. So. Um, you know, that, that can't really happen. But at another level, it, it is definitely true that if you find a technology that works, the reason that the technology industry is such a good industry is that you can scale it and the incremental cost of one more instance is a lot lower than the upfront cost of one. So there's this, this tension between globalization and technology where at one level, technology and globalization are complements in the sense that if there are PCs being used in every computer or in every country instead of just being used in the United States that Microsoft has a bigger market and Facebook has a bigger market and Google has a bigger market. But in another sense, globalization and technology are substitutes in that if there are two ways to put money to work and risk it, one way you can at least measure the standard deviation of the outcomes. And another way you have no idea you are sampling from an unknown distribution. People may have a preference for the known distribution, known standard deviation. So they may opt for investing in globalization embedding a globalization rather than technology. Um, is this Q&A approach working for everyone or is there, uh, 
preference for something else, by the way. I think it would be nice if there was more back and forth. That's true. Okay. Like if people could ask follow-up questions, that sort of thing. All right. Um, I don't read any follow-up to the um, globalization question. No, maybe not. All right. Um, any other questions on globalization, mimetic desire, bubbles? I have a follow-up question to your answer to my question, which is, um, sorry, um, maybe answer quickly. Um, like, do you think the coronavirus has uncovered any bubbles that we were in recently? Not yet. So Warren Buffett has the classic line that you don't know who's been swimming naked until the tide goes out. And it is true that a lot of frauds and a lot of shoddily constructed deals do get exposed when the market crashes for unrelated reasons. Like I mentioned Enron, WorldCom, um, those companies all fell apart after the dot-com bubble collapsed, even though their fraud was not quite directly related. So I would say we'll probably know more in the next couple of months about that, about what bubbles we were in then. Um, like you can, if you look in detail at um, exchange-traded funds and factor performance and things during the last couple of weeks, you can see some evidence that a lot of quantitative strategies were, uh, they went from outperforming a bit over the last few years to massively underperforming in the last few weeks. So that could be evidence of a bubble. It could be evidence that these quant strategies are actually they just have a risk profile where you usually make good returns and sometimes you make really bad returns. So maybe this is what everyone was expecting. Um, it's, it is tough to, tough to say. Maybe if you wanted to look at a, a bubbly dynamic that was exposed by coronavirus, you can actually rewind to, um, to February rather than March and say that if we run every major supply chain through the same country and actually through the same city, so Shenzhen, then we do create this vulnerability where if anything goes wrong in that country, whether it is an epidemic or a political shift or a political shift somewhere else um, that happens to affect them, then suddenly there are a lot of shortages of a lot of different products. Now, the problem with answering that question now, of asking if that possible now, is that typically when there's some kind of one-time disruption in the supply chain, you actually see the biggest macroeconomic effects six to 12 months afterwards, because what happens is there's, there's a disruption in production somewhere, and so that causes different intermediate goods to not be ordered for a while, and then it causes some of them to be over-ordered, so the factory catches up. It causes some suppliers down the chain to go bankrupt, but uh, what what can sometimes happen is that it's not those suppliers, but their suppliers who get in financial trouble. So right now, um, most of the world's auto industry is shut down. And it may be the case that the companies that are selling them headlights, engines, mufflers, et cetera, are doing okay. But the companies that sell to those companies are not doing well. So it may be that if everybody has 60 days of if everybody does receivables on 60 day terms, that it takes half a year for us to work our way three steps down the chain, and then somebody runs out of money. And then a couple months after that, there are no headlights left and, you, and then no cars getting built. So it's those kinds of disruptions that don't show up immediately, but do, do show up and are, are often pretty catastrophic. 
Um, the natural experiments we have there often involve things like earthquakes in Japan or, um, or floods in various parts of the world that have a lot of semiconductors, um, stuff like that. All right. Um, Spencer asks, how do you distinguish between the medically inspired copycat behavior and rational copycat behavior, i.e. copying Amazon is probably just in general a good strategy, or in the case of a gold rush situation where there is free wealth in a sense? So that is um, either a hard question or the hard question, because you may not be able, if, if short is right, you can't really tell when you are deliberately copying versus um, just learning best practices. Like you, you don't actually know and you're not really supposed to be able to know unless you think very deeply about it. Um, I would say that you, the trouble with copying directly is that you're always copying later, you're copying after it's been proven out. So you're really, you can't actually copy directly because by the time you've heard about it, you're copying something different. You don't know if you're copying mistakes or if you're copying the correct decision. You don't know if you are, if there were 50 companies that did something similar and one of them worked out by random chance and that's the one that you happen to be emulating and the actual lesson is something like get lucky or have rich parents or whatever. Um, you just, you don't really know. So what I would say is that you know that you're doing rational copycat behavior if you realize several years after the fact that you were in fact doing what Jeff Bezos would have done if he was in your, at your age and in your position. But that's something you can't really, you can't ask that question in the present um, without just clearly being a weird Gerardian mimetic character. But you can, you can look back and you can say, that you found some opportunity where there was a, a growth trend, you weren't actually sure who would make money or how, but you knew this trend was growing so fast that it couldn't not be important at some point. And so you got involved early on. Um, there are other ways in which you can, you can indirectly copy someone. So if you, if you find that what you did was take some part of the world that is messy and intractable and turn it into something with a search bar or something that fits into a Postgres database, then you were actually copying Jeff Bezos, but you probably would only figure out that that was the right approach after some experimentation. So um, that is, that's a frustrating answer because it's a very frustrating question. Like the Gerard was not writing a self-help book that was like, here are the five steps to never being subject to mimetic desire again. He was writing a whole lot of books about this incredibly slippery and dangerous and hard to spot phenomenon. Does that work for you, Spencer? Yeah, uh, could I actually just like uh, follow on super quick because like we are kind of getting at the nature of my muses here. Is uh, how do you like, uh, how do you kind of contextualize that within like Robin Hanson's like a uh, concept of self-signaling, signaling theory, things like that. Yeah, there are definitely some ties. Like you can, you can read a lot of Hansonian themes into Gerard's analysis. Um, and I would say that Hanson is just a little bit more bloodless. I guess he's, he seems to have this attitude that you can probably do it less or you can at least do it and appreciate it for what it is if you're aware of signaling. And I don't think that would be Gerard's attitude at all. I think his attitude would be more like once you're aware that this is an important and powerful dynamic, 
um, that maybe when everyone in your community is throwing rocks at you, one of the last thoughts that goes through your head will be, oh, this is the scapegoating mechanism. I must be the scapegoat this time. But, um, but that it's not as directly, it's not something you can actually apply and use. Um, I would say that Hansen is, um, he, he's so hyper dispassionate that if he and Gerard looked at exactly the same phenomenon, they would have um, probably the same, similar underlying views, but wildly different framings. So I think they're both valuable, but um, pretty different thinkers. I guess they, like they, they think about some of the same topics, but they think in, in radically different ways. Um, Dryden, one person puts a question. Oh, <laughs> nice one. All right. Dryden has a meta joke, so we're skipping it. Can you comment on the relationship between mimesis and reflexivity? Yes, yes, I can. So, um, George Soros has a theory that he calls reflexivity, which is the idea that securities prices create a narrative that fulfills the, they create a reality that fulfills the narrative of those securities prices. So he talked about this in the 70s in the context of real estate investment trusts, which were entities that were organized to invest in real estate and sell stock to the public. And um, basically, it's actually a similar narrative to the, the housing bubble, where the, the REITs went public, they bought these assets, the REIT stocks went up, that actually meant that bankers were more willing to lend to the REITs so they could buy more assets. And because they could lever up more, they could grow a lot faster. This caused investors to put a higher price earnings multiple on them. And uh, that caused them to grow faster. But at some point, if everybody in real estate is borrowing as much as they can to buy everything they can get their hands on, prices go up too much and they end up overpaying. Since rents are not fixed, but interest rates typically are, that uh, that can turn out very, very badly, especially if there's a recession. And then you end up with the same cycle in reverse, where um, a banker is looking at this loan they made and they say, "We lent you ten million dollars when your stock was at fifty. Now your stock's at twenty. So clearly, you are not actually um, someone we should be lending this much money to." So they pull money out, and the REIT suddenly has to scramble for cash. So, Soros. Um, it's tricky to know how much to trust his narrative because there have been a bunch of interviews of people who work with Soros who really can't understand how he thinks or like people who work directly for him have tried to read his papers on reflexivity and they've said, A, this just seems like someone pretending to be a philosophy grad student, which Soros was for a while, and B, this has nothing to do with how George actually makes decisions about what to buy and sell. So I don't know. It, it may be that it's just really hard to describe your behavior if your behavior is partially instinctive. And that's not instinctive in the sense of there was just some guy in Hungary who was born with a preternatural ability to predict whether the number goes up or down. It was more like if you study history a lot and you are just obsessed with the twists and turns of the economy and you've looked at a lot of charts and traded a lot of things, that eventually you develop this sense, you develop this memory for different scenarios and situations, and then you can apply it almost automatically. So in some ways, I think that the, the theory of reflexivity may be just um, a fruitless attempt by Soros to psychoanalyze himself. And that what, what, what's going on may just be harder to describe and harder to emulate, but, uh, but still super impressive in its own right. Um, that said, reflexivity, it's, 
it does describe a similar phenomenon to mimetically driven bubbles, but Soros is describing a phenomenon where there's, there's not a protagonist, there's, or the price is the protagonist. And since we're trying to describe human behavior and the interactions between two humans, and it does have to be the interaction between two humans because every transaction is a buyer, a seller. So everything has to be a human interaction, which is another reason finance is such a great laboratory for understanding the human condition is that it's all human interaction. Um, it's hard to, you can tell a story that doesn't actually have a protagonist, but where things just sort of happen. But it's a weird and limited story. And at the, the greatest extremes, it doesn't explain anything because the greatest extremes are always someone who's at their psychological breaking point or someone who's at the peak of a manic episode and, uh, and they do something that's otherwise inexplicable unless you deeply understand that person and their mental state. So um, they, are, they are kind of adjacent and um, I, I do sometimes find the reflexivity, um, the reflexivity theory a useful intuition pump. Like sometimes there are situations where the the way the market's behaving really only makes sense if you think of it as self-referential. So the, the market is sort of up right now on optimism that lockdowns won't last very long and or there will be a vaccine and or something, some other wonderful thing will happen. But all of those perceptions are partly driven by the fact that the market is going back up. So yeah, you can you can use it somewhat, but it's um, it's a little more removed from the human interaction. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it almost sounds like the price could be another way of communicating some of the mimetic information. It uh, is, but the thing about prices is that they are, um, the number line is just one dimensional and it's always a one dimensional projection of some really complicated multi-dimensional curves. So you can sort of infer some of the shape of those curves from, from the price and what the price does, but it's tough to get to all of them. Um, I was on a call earlier today debating um, oil prices and the oil futures strip and whether the June oil futures represent a bet on what the price of oil will be in June or whether they actually represent the cost of putting a bunch of oil onto a, onto a tanker and putting that tanker somewhere until June and then emptying it and selling it. So um, often if you have two things that can affect one price, then any given price movement is, um, it's overdetermined. Right. Cool. All right, Parker asks, what would you say to a critic arguing that attributing bubbles to mimetic desires is an oversimplified cause fallacy? With the ICO bubble, betting on others to speculate the price up could be rational as opposed to betting because you were jealous of other success. I felt like the popular narrative on Twitter and media outlets was we're in a bubble here. I thought the ICO bubble was actually one of the, the ICO creation itself is this really pure mimetic behavior. And Satoshi is a really interesting model because we don't know anything about him except what he did. So we can maybe infer personality traits, but we don't know how, how socially steganographic he was in terms of disguising what kind of person he really was. Um, we just know that he wrote a white paper and he put together some source code and he started mining and he bootstrapped this thing into existence. And then every other project has been white paper, maybe source code, and you start mining and bootstrap something into existence. So in that sense, it was hypermimetic. It's just the one thing you couldn't copy about Satoshi was um, being this totally anonymous first genius. And if you just tried to publish an anonymous white paper outlining a new cryptocurrency, that would be extremely boring. 
um, at this point, unless unless you have some really cool new ideas, but it's uh, going from one to n, even if n is very big, is, is different from going from zero to one. So um, in that sense, it was uh, pretty mimetic. In another sense, like, yeah, a lot of people did talk about how it looked like a bubble. There's there's the question of who's the marginal commentator and who is the marginal price setter, and if these people are in, and the extent to which the day traders are really in on it or not, like, do they understand that they're speculating on something totally valueless? Do they think they're actually contributing to new technology products? Um, are they maybe telling themselves they think they're contributing to new te technology products because they don't want to admit to themselves they're actually speculating on purely meaningless noise? Um, that's that's a very hard one to parse. I would say that um, the vast majority of ICO products projects were clearly totally bogus, and um, the vast majority of people betting on coins outside of maybe five um, really did deserve to to lose a lot of money. But the the mimetic part, like definitely a lot of the bull case for a lot of these coins was if this only reaches 1% of the value of Bitcoin, it's going up 100x. And that happened a couple of times. It happened a lot of times, actually. Um, and then it stopped happening. But because of because one of the natural laws of finance is that time-weighted returns look better than dollar-weighted returns because everyone invests at the worst possible moment because the worst possible moment is the moment at which everyone invests. So just um, pretty much by definition, the average return over time is going to look better than the average return of the average investor because they they set prices by having bad timing. Um, I don't know if that truly addresses your question. Like I would say the mimetic theory of bubbles is not the only theory that explains a bubble and it's not the only one that I use when I'm trying to understand a bubble or if if something is a bubble, but it's a useful one and um, it's it's one where there's a lot of a lot of literature, a lot of backstory, and a lot of explanations that are not purely tied to finance, which is actually really convenient, where if you have, um, it's basically increasing your sample size artificially. So you have a little more confidence that this is a real phenomenon and not just something you invented that, that, backfit, uh, that back tests well with the data you have. Could I actually ask a, like a little follow-up on that? I know yeah, it's sure. not my question, so I don't want to be rude, but... Um, uh, like uh, kind of going back to the earlier question that I asked, like uh, I'm curious how you would contextualize the ICO bubble within like a gold rush phenomenon uh, versus like maybe Ethereum, which was actually pretty mimetic in the sense that it took Bitcoin and tried to be like a very utopian Bitcoin. And uh, I also do want to acknowledge that like Vitalik is awesome and he's like a genius and uh, not trying to like disparage Vitalik by suggesting that Ethereum was like mimetic and not reasonable. But like, yeah. how would you think about that? Yeah. So. Ethereum is a really interesting one because A, it was a really early, it was as far as I know, the first project that was um, clearly based on Bitcoin, based on the underlying concept of a cryptocurrency, but also doing enough new things that it did seem to represent something new and different. So um, I, I don't want to call that purely mimetic. It was clearly, clearly more than that. Um, in terms of comparing it to a gold rush, um, that gets really tricky. Like, it's not, with a gold rush, you can say that there's some, some area and we, we expect that 
this fairly high risk but high reward activity is going to be higher reward and slightly lower risk in this area. You can sort of analogize that to, to different areas of technology, but it's, it usually doesn't work very well because often people are, um, you have more of a technological dowsing rod where you're, you're actually able to find real opportunities and there's a correlation between uh, being able to execute on opportunities and being sensitive to what is or is not a real opportunity. So I'm just, I'm very reluctant to use that analogy because I, I think it somewhat distorts what's, uh, what's going on. And actual gold rushes are, are their own interesting phenomenon. Thanks. I didn't have any follow-up questions. Um, I didn't mean to say that like uh, it was oversimplification of the cause since there's a ton of other causes that are, uh, like valuable. I just haven't read about financial bubbles. And um, yeah, another point on Ethereum, uh, it's kind of interesting how it just like, it, it was the technology that enabled uh, other people to, to quickly be medic and spin up um, new bubbles through like, you know, the sales actually going on on top of Ethereum. Um, so it's actually medic. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's true. Like when I first looked at Ethereum, I didn't really understand why why it should have a valuation. Like I could see why it was a valuable technology, but it looked a lot closer to to Linux than to Bitcoin, where you're like, this is really valuable, but it's not like owning a piece of it means owning a piece of the value that's created, which is much more much more true with Bitcoin. And then it turned out that for a while, Ethereum was able to capture a lot of value because of the, the ERC-20 mechanism where basically money had to flow into Ethereum to flow into these ICOs. And as long as the flow was sufficiently high relative to the stock of speculative demand in Ethereum, then it consistently pushed up the price. So that, I don't know, it's, um, it's weird that there was a, a technology that happened to enable a lot of medic desire. On the other hand, if you want a quick laboratory in mimetic desire, um, think really hard to yourself about how you actually feel every time you check Instagram and about why that is. And, uh, and maybe you'll find another technology that, uh, that strongly promotes mimetic behavior. Um, let's see. Any thoughts? Okay, Joshua Fisher says, uh, railroad bubble feels like a quintessential example of artificially lowered interest rates resulting in malinvestment of capital further up the production structure. The returns are still higher. Any thoughts on the Austrian explanation of bubbles versus the Girardian explanation? Um, so this, I presume this is about the 1840s British railway bubble. Is that accurate, Josh? Yeah, correct. The one that you referenced in the paper. Great, yeah. So the as far as I know, those interest rates were not really, um, I don't think they were low as a result of any kind of central banking shenanigans or anything. I think, I think Britain was pretty close to a gold standard at the time and um, did not actually have a very flexible uh, money supply. Anyone who's more familiar with the history of, uh, of inflation and gold buggery, et cetera, um, feel free to chime in if I'm wrong there. But I think I think the money supply was pretty constant and the economy was, was fairly volatile. Um, but it is true that the, the, 
like in general, if the if there's an excess supply of money, the money has to go somewhere. It's typically going to go to higher risk assets. Often those assets can't as easily absorb money as other assets can. So you get more exaggerated changes in prices. But there was a whole different narrative about the railroads and why they were such a big deal. And a lot of that narrative turned out to be totally wrong. But um, ultimately, the railroads actually turned into a pretty decent investment. Like they they radically underperformed expectations. And expectations were that you could you could earn 3% on your money lending it to the government. You could earn 4% on your money lending it to mid-sized businesses, or you could earn 10% investing in a railroad. It turned out you couldn't really earn 10%, but railroad investors did earn mid-single-digit returns. They, um, they had underestimated the cost of building a railroad. They way overestimated the initial revenues. But one thing that was not actually in their models was long-term economic growth. And if you have 2% growth, that's a 2% addition to your return. So that can take your return from equivalent government bonds to better than you can get in any other asset class at the time. Uh, just to chime in here real, real quick, uh, since you were mentioning the gold standard and all of that stuff in uh, the UK at the time, they were on the gold standard. It was a fairly fixed monetary supply, um, but the UK had extraordinarily high savings rates um, and had quite a bit of capital as a result. Um, so there was money flowing into railroads. There was also a lot of money flowing from the UK to the US at that point in time. Uh, JP Morgan's father actually got his fortune by introducing you know wealthy brits to americans who are looking to set up factories and railroads and so on and uh, so on in the u.s thank you sean i knew someone would know this <laughs> yeah so that's that's useful context um because like i guess from sort of the the austrian economics cultural tendency would be to to think relatively highly of high savings rates versus low savings rates but High savings rates can, um, they do represent an increase in the money supply that's going to financial assets. So they can lead to bubbles. Like if you look at um, any of the East Asian economies, but especially China, extremely high savings rates, and there's just not a lot of places for that money to go. So they end up with um, lots of different bubbles. And one, of my, one of my theories on China is um, that they, they sort of mistranslated the argument that money should be a means of um, exchange a unit of account and a store of value because they actually have different things for each of those purposes. So they have uh, a kind of money you can use within China, a kind of money that you can use that's exchangeable with other currencies, and then they have empty apartments as their store of value. So very weird system there. Um, right. Next. Oh. Um, I should look into the, the Leo Strauss addressing Vogelin's points. That sounds fun. Um, if the mimetic effect were true, it seems that everyone buying a financial asset, or every buying of a financial asset by an investor should lead to an exuberant rise in its share price. Does the theory offer any criterion for explaining why some speculations lead to bubbles and why others do not? Yeah, so in a lot of cases, asset prices are just going to bounce around because at any given moment, there's either a surplus of buyers or a surplus of sellers, or there may be someone who is interested in buying, but not quite at the current price. So they will wait a little bit and buy at a slightly better price. Where you start to see more, um, more contagious mimetic effects, more bubbly effects is 
when the the price action starts to reinforce the narrative and when people start actually altering their behavior based on the price changes. So in a lot of cases, these price changes are sufficiently random that there's there's no point at which you look at a chart and you see a narrative, or there's no point at which you look at a list of the best performing funds or the new entrance to the Forbes 400 and start putting together some sense that there's some specific phenomenon going on. But at some point, typically, if there's something real that is actually creating wealth and, um, and making some people fortunes, you will start to put together some view of what the pattern is, what the underlying phenomenon is, and then you'll start to, um, to if you're sufficiently victimized by mimetic desire, you'll start to try to copy the people who have already succeeded with this. Um, does that address the question like it, it is it is true that whenever you have this um whenever you have this argument that price action leads to further price action in the same direction the question is why don't prices go to infinity or zero and um, i played around with building some agent-based models of financial markets and um, typically in an agent-based model prices do either go to infinity or zero unless you calibrate it very very carefully it's just uh very, very difficult to actually come up with a, a sane and reasonable model, which should tell you something about how, um, how difficult it is to model actual human behavior. Yeah, I think that, that um, it kind of got at my, the, the root of my question there was really, um, so why some and not others? Like, it, it seems like the model lacks some explanatory power around that initial kind of um tendency in that that direction of mimetic desire so you, you you kind of in your explanation said um like more and more people kind of pile on and then it's this snowball effect but but why does that initiate in some uh cases of speculation and, and not in others i don't know if there's a definitive standard for this because part of it there's almost this anthropic principle where the more extreme the price gets, the more it's necessary to have a narrative, but also the more extreme the price gets, the more you want to figure out what's going on. So the more you come up with a narrative. So it is this self-fulfilling process where like no one, no one would look at a list of every stock that's traded today and say, wow, this stock was up 0.2%. What could possibly explain that? But if a stock is up 20% today, you want to know why. And if you come up with a really compelling reason that it was up 20% today, and that's also a reason it should be up another 10% tomorrow, then you start to get closer to some kind of um, early bubble territory. So that's a really dissatisfying answer because it's almost like um, the, there's no good answer for that question because the question is, um, is generally unasked because there's generally just no question about um, what is the narrative around this stock price movement or what is the narrative around this asset price movement? But yeah, sometimes I guess what I'd say is that sometimes the narrative just makes a lot of sense. Like this company just lost a lawsuit and they're, or they just won a lawsuit and some company has to pay them $10 million and their market cap went up $10 million. Okay. We have our narrative it explains the stock price and now we're good. But if the stock price is going up and the narrative is more like this company is crushing the competition and that's why the best people in the industry are all joining that company and that's why the smartest investors are piling into the stock, then you start to have something that's self-fulfilling where every time more smart investors buy it, 
the recruiting team at that company has an easier time telling people that they should join the company. And then every time they hire a new superstar, more investors pay attention. So sort of bootstraps itself into existence. Um, Dryden and Charlie, so this is a Charlie question. How do you think about using Girard's philosophy when timing the pop? I don't know if it speaks that much to timing and timing in bubbles is just a fundamentally hard problem because you, you have to step outside the narrative. You have to figure out what the narrative, what aspect of reality the bubble is missing before you figure out how the timing works, right? Because the bubble is based on some narrative. It's based on some claim about what's true. And as long as you're just evaluating that claim on its own merits, it's, it's tough to disprove it because if it were disprovable, you wouldn't have a bubble. It's only if the claim is hard to prove or if it's very superficially easy to demonstrate. So with, uh, with the dot-com bubble, it was just hard to prove. You can't prove definitively that the internet is not going to change the world. Um, with the housing bubble, it was very easy to prove statistically that investing in a hyper-diversified portfolio of mortgages, even subprime mortgages, was a really good deal. If you ran the back test over the previous 50 years, you actually got great results. So what you have to do is figure out what is the underlying mechanism that causes this to appear to be true, and then could something break that mechanism? So um, there was some interesting work done around um, a... In the, in the housing bubble, there was interesting work done around trying to time the impact of different employment shocks. So if GM shuts down a factory, what is the effect on, uh, on mortgage default rates and how does that percolate through the market? And then looking at the flow of money into mortgage-backed securities was another one. So if you thought that what was really going on was the flow of money into mortgage-backed securities was the fundamental driver of housing price appreciation, and then you could say, if we figure out where that money is coming from, whether it's indirectly from China running a giant trade surplus or from um, Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds that are also running giant trade surpluses and also recycling the money into dollars, if you can figure that out, then you can figure out if that slows down. And then you end up with these sort of, you know, bird flaps and swings in Paraguay kind of, uh, kind of investment theses where you say, oil just dropped and therefore mortgage-backed mortgage securities prices are going to collapse. Um, so you always end up sounding like a crazy conspiracy theory, theorist if you've actually figured out what's going on in the bubble, and then you end up ideally vindicated. But the, the sample size of people actually doing that and doing it well and timing it right is just vanishingly small, in part because the more you're thinking like a conspiracy theorist, the more likely you are to actually start believing in crazy conspiracies. So you start out thinking that it's actually money flows and the Saudi public investment fund. And uh, pretty soon you're talking about the Illuminati. It's a very fine line. There are a lot of incredibly smart investors who read Zero Hedge and take it very seriously and own more guns than you would like to think about. Uh, well, we're at uh, 9.30 Eastern time, 6.30 Pacific time. Um, this has been, uh, I mean, Bern, you've been talking for an hour and a half straight. so. <laughs> um, I, I want to thank everyone for turning out tonight. Um, I don't know if you have any additional time to answer what's left in the queue, but that's totally up to you, Bern. Um, but I would, you know, I thank everyone for showing up this evening. Um, I'll leave this room up and, and running if anyone wants to sit around and have a conversation uh, with each other, with Bern, who 
burn. I'm not going to volunteer you to stick around. Uh, but I'll see those of you who would like to attend our workshop uh, with Sam Persia in two weeks. Uh, and you'll receive a very similar calendar invite to that one as you received to this one. Please do respond to it. Let me know if you're able to come or not. If you're unable to come, please volunteer someone that you think would enjoy it in your set. Uh, but thank you, Bern, and uh, thank you everyone for turning out this evening. All right, thank you all. I will stick around for a bit um, just to go through the last few questions. So you're welcome to leave or you're welcome to stay. And thank you all for coming and thank you all for the wonderful questions. I had a great time. And now we'll proceed. Um, so, Next up, are busts driven, also driven by mimetic desire or is it primarily deleveraging? The deleveraging process seems to be a part of the process of a bust, but not actually the main driver because the deleveraging, um, there are a lot of ways to think about it. I like to think of it as a short squeeze in dollars where if everybody owes dollars, they're all short dollars. And if at any point, the value of the dollar starts rising with respect to other assets, which is another way of talking about a market crash, then um, everyone who gets caught short has to buy dollars by selling literally everything they can. And that process can quickly feed on itself. But that's almost more of a description of the mechanics of why when people stop believing in the dot-com narrative, the Dow goes down too. So why is it that someone who no longer thinks that Yahoo is the next great media company um, why does that belief cause Alcoa stock to drop by a third? That is that is deleveraging, uh, probably. Like often deleveraging coincides with recessions. It's tough to determine causation because you have to figure out who is um, correctly marking down their loans, who's correctly calling in their loans, who's responding to the imminent calling in of a loan somewhere else. So um, the causation gets it's very very tangled in a financialized economy. But that's I think roughly what's going on. Um, is that, does that work for you, Joe? But, but so, so you don't think mimetic desire is really associated with bust at all, just the setup? Like, for instance, you could, like, it's, it's sort of odd that one entire investor class believes something very strongly, and then sort of very quickly they don't, um, all at once. Is, is that mimetic things well, or what's going on there? I don't think, I don't think the loss of belief is as much a mimetic phenomenon as the creation of belief. Like I think it's part of the, the mimetic cycle or part of this, the scapegoating cycle is that you get really, really hyped up. You reach this emotional peak, things start to go crazy and then you find somebody to blame and you just release all of that tension by um, murdering that person or metaphorically murdering them by, by hating them a lot. Um, I, I just don't see the same kind of mimetic dynamic because it's not like, it's not like anyone says my aspiration in life is to be the first person to run out of a burning building. But in finance, that's what everyone wants to be. Once the building, once you realize the building's on fire, um, you at least want to be the second person out. You don't want to be the last. So uh, it's, it's um, I guess it's not mimetic because it, there's not an aspiration. There's more, it's more driven by fear. And the Girardian mimetic stuff, um, it's very emotionally complicated, but there's, there's definitely this nominally positive component to it. I'll add uh, just a thought on that. What about trend followers though, who in many ways are consciously following, they could actually be outside of the mimetic bubble, but aware of it and attempting to both exploit it on the way up and then at the same time drive it down. 
Yeah. So and then once they like, see something that's going to challenge that mimetic bubble, they're going to reverse. It's tough to say because, like, at one level, you could just you could have this almost behavioralist view that is just if you were doing things that other people do and it's because other people are doing it, then that's necessarily mimetic. But um, you can also have this deeper view of if you explicitly say I'm following trends, not because I think that the people who create those trends are smart, but because I think that statistically trends tend to persist, then then maybe that's something different. Maybe it can be, it can be mimetic the level of you are doing what the commodities corporation people did in the 70s. So, and like the reason we know that trend following works is that a lot of smart people made a lot of money doing it back then. Um, but I guess, I guess you might have, like people can independently come up with that or figure that out. Um, I don't know though. It's, it seems like it's enough part of the, um, it's enough of a thing that's in the water that you can't really come up with it on your own. Like, between Jesse Livermore and the Commodities Corporation guys and the Turtle Traders and the documentary trader, they're just, and Soros, there, there are enough people who talk about trend following that um, it is, at some level, the kernel of that idea comes from somebody else. That said, it, it's not as if every trend follower is consciously trying to be one of those famous trend followers. So I don't know, that's, that's really tricky because like at a very literal level, it is perfectly mimetic behavior. And then at the psychological level, it's much less mimetic than, than you know, getting obsessed with Warren Buffett and trying to buy other value stocks that Buffett wouldn't touch. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Bonnie asks, what's your advice for how to avoid mimetic desire and find who you truly are and what you want to do? And also find original insights. Um, that question is above my pay grade, so I will tell you Gerard's approximate advice, which is um, convert to Christianity and be a devout Christian. <laughs> um, if you if you want to read, so if you read this um, this Gerardian theory of we all find this one victim who we blame for everything wrong with our world, and then we all get together and kill him together it sounds like he got inspired by the gospels and the gospel story ends with the, uh, the, the Romans being told by the mob, this is the specific guy you want to kill and they kill him. Um, so in that sense, it sounds like it is this Gerardian story, but then it turns out that um, in the book, I see Satan fall like lightning, Gerard talks about how it is actually the one story that totally refutes that narrative. So um, I would recommend diving into that. But um, other than that, I don't, I, I guess being conscious of mimetic desire is a start, but it's, um, it's kind of like if you, if you hear the phrase existence is suffering or some variant on that, you're not immediately a Buddhist and you're certainly not immediately enlightened, but it is a start. And if you meditate on that and think about that and imagine all the permutations of that, then over a very long time period, you might achieve some Buddhist form of enlightenment. Although as a non-Buddhist who is also not enlightened, I can't tell you that for sure. Um, but it's uh, probably that kind of thing is much more of a process than, than something on which you can give actual advice. But um, sample size tends to benefit. So um, read a lot of Gerard, read a, read a lot of um, the books that he references, and then read a lot about financial bubbles and um, try to see what weird things everything has in common. Can you tell me what's worse for you or people you know? 
Um, what has worked for me to avoid mimetic desire? I don't know if I can really accurately claim that I've avoided it. So I don't know. Like I, uh, I guess there are definitely people who I consider myself in direct competition with and uh, I try to figure out what they're doing and do it better. But I, if that's conscious, maybe it's not truly mimetic. Like I'm not trying to write money stuff. I'm trying to write something that is as popular as money stuff. So um, in that sense, not quite mimetic. On the other hand, Gerard would probably say that if you have a really good narrative for why what you're doing does not constitute mimetic desire, but is identical to what someone who's totally enthralled with mimetic desire would do, that probably you're in the middle of it. So um, I don't know, other than just pursue your interests to a depth that makes other people think that you're being ridiculous and laugh at you. At least that means that you know you're not doing things to be popular. And since there's probably some correlation between externally perceived popularity and the susceptibility for mimetic desire, then uh, that's probably at least a way to slow it down. Uh, also, Bonnie, uh, oh. uh, Teal noted that a lot of the best founders in Silicon Valley were autistic or not that great with social cues. So don't be very social, I guess. Although I think some of that may, some of that claim may be due to um, sample bias, which when you're looking at, um, when you look at something with a power law distribution, you actually do care about the N equals one cases. But I have a, a particular theory on Zuckerberg, who's clearly somewhat on the spectrum and also clearly was a very good guy to write the, the first check to, um, which is that he was, when he would engage in normal social interaction, because he's on the spectrum, he has to do it very consciously. Um, he's just not a natural conversationalist. If you watch early interviews with Zuckerberg, it's pretty excruciating. Um, but what that meant was that he was mentally translating his social interactions into a list of instructions. So he was basically halfway to socializing at PHP already. So he actually had a head start when social interaction moved online ahead of everyone else. So there's a, a sort of hidden advantage there. I, I wrote a piece about that um, a while ago, and then I actually realized that a, a Yukio Mishima quote pretty much summarized the entire thing for me uh, much more succinctly, but I'll drop a link to that into, uh, into the Zoom group chat. I was actually just gonna chime in real quick with like little practices. Like, um, you know, I, I think it's possible to practice this by seeing what is something that I could do do today that other people are going to question and it could be as simple as like wearing two different color socks two different shoes like it doesn't have to be doing something crazy but I think the act of getting practice in having people ask you why you're doing and what you're doing is really good for this that's a really good point actually um I hadn't yeah. thought about that but just getting yourself in the habit of doing questionable things um, right probably a good way to do it I do like, I really like cost first approaches to, to pretty much any kind of life improvement where instead of saying, what is this Pareto improvement I can make where I get what I want, but I don't lose any of the things that I, I don't want to lose. You ask yourself, like, assuming my friends are all going to be annoyed that I don't socialize with them anymore. What is the most I could accomplish with my newly abundant free time? Um, I, I like that because then there's no marginal cost to actually pissing people off or there's no marginal cost to all these all these annoying things you have to do if you just pay that cost, mentally pay the cost up front. 
Mm -hmm. Thank you, this is very helpful. Anytime. Uh, term marginal commentator has something like neuron spiraling. What other philosophers of human nature would you like to see applying to exploring financial phenomena? That's a really good question. What other, what other non-finance thinkers would apply? I may have to save that one for later. Um, aside from the, the Vogelin example that has come up earlier. All right, and um, I think this may be the last full question. Spencer asks, what phase of your catalyst differentiation bifurcation crisis resolution is the higher ed bubble in? All right, um, so I think we are, um, we're a couple of years away from the crisis. We're probably in the bifurcation phase. So um, bifurcation is this phenomenon that I, I don't know, I don't know how much it's part of the normal mental toolkit, but it's something that I found really useful, which is when there's a financial bubble, there's a point at which you can compare the bubble asset to some legacy asset. And you could say these are pretty similar. Maybe the bubble one is more of a bet on growth or it's a more optimistic one and the legacy one is a little more cautious. So there was a point at which Blockbuster and Netflix had pretty similar stock market values and they were both seen as bets on DVDs basically. And then as Netflix stock went up relative to Blockbuster, you had fewer and fewer people who were actually choosing between one and the other. At some point, Netflix's stock price only made sense if they were going to kill Blockbuster. Blockbuster stock price only made sense if Netflix was overhyped and going to die. So there was no overlap between the two investors, which meant the prices were entirely set in the, in the Netflix case by the optimists. That the pessimists, they had already shorted, there was nothing left for them to do except cover their short positions. So that can create these pretty wild price divergences in the late stages of the bubble where you just, you have no one who's making an incremental decision except to buy more. Um, with, with higher education, it looks like the, the elite schools, weirdly nothing, nothing seems really capable of killing them, but there's a whole slew of um, less well-known schools that the thing that'll hurt them a lot is, that, is partially that next year, um, I'm not really sure how many people want to pay 50K a year for Zoom. Um, probably some people will, some people will get some value out of it, but it'll be really hard to maintain their pricing power if the entire nature of the product has changed. And then starting in 2024 and 2025, the, the number of people turning 18 actually takes a fairly significant drop. So that's a point at which a lot of these schools will be scrambling for every student who they can find who remotely fits their criteria. Some of them won't be able to find enough of those students and they'll start shutting down. It's really hard to shut down a school because you have a freshman class. If you don't accept a freshman class, then you just have this class of sort of academic orphans who are kind of drifting through a school that is dying before their eyes. So um, the the schools can unwind pretty quickly if they have a hard time getting enough freshmen. So what we will probably see is a number of cases in 2024 and 2025 where someone gets an acceptance letter and then a couple of months later, by the time they're ready to go to that school, the school is actually not in operation anymore. Um, so I guess that puts us somewhere between bifurcation and crisis. And then I think the resolution is, um, is that a lot of these very marginal schools go under, that the, the elite schools become much more places where you network. Um, I think they, 
they will need to start worrying a lot more about Y Combinator because Y Combinator is really replacing Stanford and Harvard and other really excellent schools, but it's much more efficient because it was invented after them and can, can do the useful things like sending an admissions letter and uh, introducing you to your classmates and then not spend as much time on the, the relatively useless things like the classes. Mm-hmm.